All right. Uh, as, I was, as I was thinking about what to do, what I wanted to do this week, I was, I was thinking of the, uh, all of the I am's in the Bible. Um, Jesus, I am the true vine. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. Um, and we've probably heard uh, a, a lot of uh, messages and Bible studies on the I am's. But I was thinking about Christmas, and I started, I started going through um, and doing a search. And it's interesting how many times we see how I came. <laughs> so I, what I want us to do this morning is I want to look at all the I came's in the Bible. Um, Jesus didn't just arrive uh, in the manger in, in Bethlehem, but we are told, in fact, by his, in his own words, why he came. Now, before we begin, I, I want to make sure um, that we understand what we don't mean when we, when we talk about Jesus coming or that he came. Um, when we say Jesus came into the world, or when he says, I came into the world, it, it is not that that was the beginning of his existence. And, and I know I don't even have to say this with this group, but I just want to... I just want to reaffirm, when Jesus came, we're not saying that this is when Jesus began to exist. Uh, John 1.1 1, 1 clearly tells us that he was eternally pre-existent as the Son, as the second person of the Godhead. So I want to make that clear. There was never a time when the Son did not exist. What we do mean, though, is what has been called his incarnation. Uh, this is when Jesus, uh, the second person of the Godhead, Jesus took on... Humanity, in other words, he became fully man. He didn't divest himself of any attributes of deity. Uh, he simply added, not simply, but he added all of the attributes of humanity. He became fully man, fully human in all ways, in all respects. So, why did he come? We're not going to be long this morning, but I think it's important for us to look at six. I came up with six. There, obviously, I think there are more. Uh, six reasons why he came. And we'll, again, for the most part, let Jesus speak for himself. Uh, the first reason why he came, if you turn to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 19. And we are going to be surfing a little bit this morning in our Bibles, which is never a bad thing. Um, but just to prepare you. Luke 19, verse 1. Jesus. Uh, this is the account of Jesus entering Jericho and... And as he was passing through, there was a man by the name of Zacchaeus. And we're all very familiar with the, with the, the story of Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector. Um, and he climbed up a sycamore tree and Jesus stopped and said, Zacchaeus, come down. Uh, I must stay at your house. And Zacchaeus throws a big party for Jesus and um, says, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I'm giving to the poor. And if I have extorted anything from anyone, and that if is probably a sense, <laughs> he most certainly had done. Most chief collectors, tax collectors, had had extorted. I am giving. Uh, I uh, I am giving back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, "Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham." And then here's Jesus: "For the Son of Man has come. Why has he come? I came to seek and to save." That which was lost. Uh, as an aside, I want to encourage us to start using the language of the Bible. Um, uh, one of the things I grew up when we did go to church, we went to the we went to more independent 
fundamentalist type churches, and I always they always would talk in terms of lost, the lost, and born again and saved, and, and that language always sounded kind of strange to me. I didn't know what that meant, lost and saved and born again. But only as I got older did I realize that that's, that's biblical language. Jesus came to seek that which was lost. We need to pray for the lost. So Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Now, this is illustrated for us in, back in chapter 15 when Jesus tells three parables right in a row to illustrate the fact that he came to seek and to save the lost. Luke 15, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near Jesus to listen to him, and both the Pharisees and the scribes began to complain, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And he begins to tell them three parables that explains why he was receiving and eating with sinners. And the first parable, remember, is the lost sheep. Um, he says, suppose a man among you has a hundred sheep and he has lost one of them. One of them is lost. Does he not leave the other 99 on the open pasture? And here you want to underline this and go after one that is lost. Go after to seek, to seek the one who is lost. When he's found it, he puts it on his shoulder, rejoicing, rejoicing. Verse 6, when he comes home, he calls together his friends, his neighbors, and saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my sheep that was lost. He came to seek and to find the lost. He uses sheep. The second parable is a lost coin. A woman loses a coin in her home. He says, doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house? And underline, search carefully until she finds it. She seeks diligently until she finds it. Seek and find. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found that which was lost. Same repeated phrase that Jesus is repeating here. And then finally, the one that we all know, the prodigal son. The prodigal goes his own way. He rejects the father. He has rejected the father. He goes his own way. In verse 17, he He comes to his senses. Uh, My translation says, comes to his senses. And he said, how many of my father's hired laborers have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will set out and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. In verse 21, the son said to his father, he returned to his father and he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father says, go get the fattened calf. Uh, Slaughter it. By the way, it's where we get the phrase, he got my goat. This is it. Seriously, he got my goat. He got what I should have had. See all the, 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 the nuggets you get on Sunday mornings? For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. Jesus said that he came to seek and to save the lost, to seek after that which was lost. And, and, and we need to remind ourselves that our God is a seeking and saving God. And it really convicted me. If we want to be like Jesus, if we want to be followers of the Lord, then we will also have a heart to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came, He said, I came to seek and to save the lost. Number two, 
Mark chapter 10. We just went through the Mark, turned back to Mark chapter 10, and it's been a long time since we're in chapter 10. in Matthew. That's why. <laughs> but I had a, another brain freeze. Yeah, there we go. This is, Remember the, the disciples are arguing on the way who's going to be greatest. And in verse 41, he says, Hearing this, the other ten began to feel indignant with James and John and calling them to himself. He said, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles domineer over them. and Their people in high position exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. Rather, whoever wants to become prominent among you shall be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you shall be slave of all. Here's verse 45. The second reason I came. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And what did this service entail? It meant to give His life as a ransom for many. He came, number two, to give His life as a ransom for many. Now the word ransom... uh, is virtually synonymous with words like redeem or, or, or redemption. And these are very important words in the New Testament. And let me clarify right off the bat that this is not, we're not talking about the ransom theory of the atonement. The ransom theory of the atonement said that Jesus had to ransom us back from the, from the devil, that the devil has authority and that he had no legal authority. And that, uh, This is not the ransom theory of atonement. This is the, the, the concept... Of redemption. For instance, we see in Titus chapter 2, if you want to just write that down, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and in a godly manner in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, eager for good deeds. So think in terms of ransom. Think in terms of redemption. Salvation is not just believing something differently than before, although it is, but it's not just that. Salvation requires something much more important and something much more drastic. And the reason is because when we look at what, our, what state we were in before we were saved, we understand that it, it was more than just believing in a certain set of ideas. For instance, in Romans 6.20 says that we're, we were slaves of sin. Most people have this notion that everybody is in, in a kind of a state of neutrality, of spiritual neutrality. And that with equal ease, they can decide who and what they want to believe and follow. The Bible says, though, that we are slaves of sin. As I read earlier this morning, the Bible also says that we were, by nature, children of wrath. Uh, I remember when I went before, uh, when I was uh, on staff at an evangelical free church, in order to be a pastor in an evangelical free church, you had to be um, credentialed. And what they required is you had to go before uh, a board... And it was, the board was made up of, uh, of representatives from EV free churches in that region. And you'd submit your doctrinal statement and they would, uh, you know, they would question you. Uh, I eventually served on that board. I was not 
I eventually went off it because I just wasn't didn't like what it had become. It had become an inquiry, inquisition. Um, but I'll never forget one of the one of the gentlemen on the board asked me. Um, and, and by the way, everybody has their pet question that they want to ask. You know, their trick question to try to trip you up. You know, because it, it's the axe they want to grind. You can always tell. They can't wait to ask you the, this theological question. This guy could tell. This was his. This was the axe that he wanted to grind. And he said, uh, "Are we sinners because we sin, or do we sin because we're sinners?" And without a hesitation, I said, "Well, we sin because we're sinners." And he he st- he started arguing. And I, I I I simply went to, you know, Roman or Ephesians two. Ephesians 2, we do not sin. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We were by nature sinners. Psalm 51, when David said, I was, from the moment of my conception, I was a sinner. You see that beautiful little baby back there? (laughs) Kayla? She is a sinner. By nature. Rachel's not even arguing. I know. <laughs> are you talking about your husband or your? No. We are we are sinners by nature. This is not. This was not just. I'm I'm going to decide for Jesus. No, something more radically radical had to happen. The Bible says in Colossians, Paul tells us that we were alienated from God and that we were hostile to God. Now, you, you might look back and say, I, I don't ever remember being hostile to God. No, we were in our state of alienation, our condition and our state, we were, in ho- we were in hostility towards God. Whether subjectively that was ever something we, we consciously experienced, the Bible says we were hostile to Him. Colossians also tells us that we lived in the domain of darkness. That, that there was this sphere, the, the sphere we lived in, he called, was called a domain of darkness. And he had, we had to be transferred out of this domain of darkness into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of his son. And then Paul tells us in Galatians that we were under the curse of the law. The demands of the law... Were perfection. In fact, Paul told the, the Israelites in Deuteronomy that if you, that they had to keep all of the law, and if they didn't, that that they would be cursed. See, we needed to be bought back from slavery. We had to be transferred from death and darkness and from God's wrath. And I read these verses this morning, and I'd like for you to actually look at them yourself. 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1. Verse 18. Knowing... That you were not redeemed. There's our word. Ransomed. Redeemed. You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. In other words, that this change was not enacted by something that was physical or outward. But this was an inward spiritual redemption. You were redeemed with, the precious, with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless. The blood of Christ. 
He came, came to give his life as a ransom for many to redeem us because, in fact, we were slaves of sin. We were by nature children of wrath. We were alienated and hostile to God. We lived in the domain of darkness and we were under the curse of the law. Number three, turn back to the Gospel of Luke, if you would. Luke chapter 5. And by the way, we have um, manger. Good. Great. Sounds like... Uh, we have a manger here. Uh, and it is to represent the fact that Jesus came. And so uh, maybe we can... If Kayla needs a nap, we could put Kayla up here. And, uh, no, we don't do that. But Luke chapter 5, verse 27. After he went out and looked at a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax collector's booth, he, he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind, got up and began following him. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a large crowd of tax collectors and other people. I mean, I want you to imagine this, this scene. That these, are, these are the most hated people of his culture. Um, and they're drinking and they're smoking. And they're flaunting their money that they've extorted from, from, all, the, uh, from all their neighbors. And... Um, and the scribes and the Pharisees begin grumbling to his disciples, saying, why, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? We saw this again in Luke 15. And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. And he uses a very simple illustration. He said, How many of you have called up your doctor and said, Hey, I need, I need to come see you. And your doctor says, what is it about? What's going on? So, nothing. I'm feeling great. I'd, I'd like to come see you. No one does that. Why? You, don't, you only call a doctor when something's wrong, when you're sick or you, or, or you need something repaired. And that's what Jesus said. He said, no, it, is, it is not the healthy who need a doctor. Now, he's not in saying that. He said, is saying that they are, in fact, spiritually healthy. But he says, verse 32, I have not come. Here it is. Why he came. I have not come to call the righteous to repentance. And, and I think the NIV rightly puts righteous in quotation marks. He, he means that sarcastically. I've not come to call... People who think that they're righteous, I can do nothing for them. People who think that they're absolutely perfectly well, a doctor can do nothing for them. But I have come to call sinners to repentance. Which is number three. He came to call sinners to repentance. Now we talked a little bit about, well, no, we actually talked a lot about repentance when we went through a, a series on sanctification. Let me just reiterate what we mean when we talk about repentance. This is, in fact, theologically disputed, although it shouldn't be. Um, most of the time, people accept an, a, a definition of repentance is because that's what they've always been taught. They've never investigated themselves in the scriptures what repentance means biblically. They've read a book, or they've heard a sermon, or some, someone's taught them, and they've never examined it themselves. And let me tell you what I, what, what I was taught most of my life about what repentance was. Repentance was remorse. You feel sorry for your sin, and you, may, you have a determined 
you, you are determined to turn away from your sin and never sin again. The only problem with that is that's not what the word means. Uh, if you were to do a word study on all the, the, uh, the places where repent or repentance is found in the New Testament, only a couple have anything to do with sin. And even in those cases, it doesn't mean repent of your sin. The word simply means a change of mind. It's a change of perspective. It's a change of outlook. It's a change of perception. And what happens, though, is is we often confuse the fruit of repentance with the nature or what the definition of repentance is. When someone is lost and, and God takes the blinders off, and their perspective changes. And, and as Paul says, they can see the light of the glory of Christ. When, when now they see things differently, what's going to be the result? They're going to begin to behave differently. But repentance is not behaving differently. You listen, if I could turn from my sin before I came to know Christ, why would I need to come to know Christ? In fact, to look at Acts chapter 26. Verse 20. Well, actually, Susie, verse 19. No, I mean, uh, she's right. I always do that. She had a card made up for them. For this reason, or for that reason, King Agrippa, Paul is before King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. But I continually proclaimed to those in Damascus first, and in Jerusalem, and then all the region of Judea, even to the Gentiles, that they are to repent of their sins. Is that what it says? No. Repent and turn to God. Here it is. Performing deeds consistent with repentance. True repentance will produce deeds consistent with that repentance. I looked at other translations. The NIV says, and they will demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. The Amplified says, living lives which are consistent with their repentance. Uh, The Christian Standard Bible, they will do works worthy of repentance. ESV, in keeping And turn to God in keeping and do good deeds, keeping with repentance. The New Living Translation says, and prove they've changed by the good things they do. We have to be careful that we don't expect someone to to say, now are you willing to turn from your sin? They haven't even accepted Christ yet, and we're asking them to turn from their sin. That's not repentance. Repentance is they they realize I'm a sinner, and I'm lost, And I'm without hope, without God, and now I want and I need Jesus. And when they do that, then they will live, he says, then live lives consistent with that repentance. We have to be careful that we don't confuse the fruit of repentance with what repentance is, in fact, itself. Number four, John chapter three. He came to call sinners to repentance. John chapter three. Do I even need do we even need to read John 
As I've often said, I challenge anybody who is my age to, to quote John 3.16 in any version other than King James. What's John 3.16? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Okay, someone quote for me John 3.17. No, don't look, don't look, Tom. <laughs> okay, John, Dan is really close. For God, here it is. I get that. So, Cindy, he gets an extra sandwich or something for lunch. <laughs> yeah, give him an extra quarter of a shot. Yeah. Verse 17. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but so that the world might be saved through Him. I know. We're off King James. That was only 16. The one who believes in Him is not judged. The one who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. He came to deliver us to deliver mankind from condemnation of a just and holy God. Verses 17 and 18 are crucial to understanding verse 16. Notice how the verses begin, verse 17. For God did not send the Son, the world did not come, or the Son did not come to judge the world. Because why? The world was already judged. The world was... We were already condemned. A person is not condemned when they reject Christ. Does everyone understand that? Again, we have this notion that everybody is kind of in this, uh, this spiritual neutral zone. And, and, uh, and once they reject Christ, then they're condemned for not believing in Jesus. But John... Jesus tells us in John, of course, there's a dispute over this is John speaking or Jesus speaking. But in any event, we're already condemned. He came to save us from his own condemnation. For the unrepentant sinner, the greatest danger isn't his or her own sin. It's not demons. It's not Satan. The greatest danger is the just condemnation that they are under by God himself. Isn't that a mystery? that the very God who, who, who held us under just condemnation also sent His Son to deliver us and redeem us and save us from that condemnation. Jesus was God's answer to His just condemnation of guilty sinners. And outside of Jesus, there is nothing but wrath, there is nothing but condemnation. Look at the very last verse of John chapter 3. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life. But the one who does not obey, which is interesting, obey and believe apparently are synonymous. The one who does not obey the Son will not see life. Here it is. But the wrath of God remains on him. If you have not trusted in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation, God's wrath remains on you. You are in a state of wrath and condemnation. Jesus came to deliver us from the just condemnation of a holy God. It, it's not just about believing a set of facts. 
we had to be redeemed. And we were redeemed through believing. And it's interesting that when when objective, this is an objective legal act. This is when we believe the just condemnation for my sins are dealt with in their entirety. As Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. It, they are dealt with completely in their entirety. And I am only freed, only when I am objectively and legally freed from the just condemnation of God can I subjectively begin to experience peace and contentment in my relationship with God. In those classic verses in Romans chapter 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That, 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 that deep, inward, subjective experience of God's eternal love. He came to deliver mankind from the condemnation of a just and holy God. Number five, he came to give us an abundant life. Turn, stay in John chapter 10, verses that are taken so often out of context. John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And I came that they would have life and have it abundantly. Can't tell me times I've heard is the thief is Satan and he wants to steal your joy or he wants to steal and kill and destroy you. And that is certainly true, but that's not who the thief is in John chapter 10. We have to go back, way back to John chapter 9, the healing of the blind man. Verse 40, when those who were with him, those who were with him from the Pharisees, heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now that you maintain, we see, your sin remains. And unfortunately, obviously we're, 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 we're blessed. Stephanus in 1551 who added chapters and then later verses to our Bibles. We are blessed. But this is one of those cases where it can, it can trip us up. Ignore the chapter break. Jesus, they say, he, he just got to saying, now that you say we see, your sin remains. Truly, truly, I say to you, who's you? The Pharisees. See, see guys, we've got to read what it says. It's, you is not you. It's the Pharisees talking to the Pharisees. The one who enters by the door of the fold of the sheep, uh, enters by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But the one who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep listen to his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts them out, uh, when he puts the, all his own sheep outside, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. However, a stranger they simply will not follow but will flee, will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus told them this figure speech, but they didn't understand what the things they did not understand what the things which he was saying to them meant. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All those who came before me are thieves and robbers. So the context tells us who the thieves are. It, it is, in fact, the Pharisees, all the religious leaders that came before him. These were false teachers. This was false religion. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he'll be saved. He'll go out in and out and find pasture. The thief, the thieves and the robbers who came before him, the thief and the robbers, in, in, in context, he's clearly talking about them. 
come only to steal, kill, and destroy. They, they, they come for their own benefit, not for the benefit of the sheep. I came that they would have life. And who's the they? The sheep. I came that they would have life and have it abundantly. Not just eternal life, but an abundant life. Now, in what sense can it be abundant? Uh, if you're familiar with the Four Spiritual Laws booklet, which I cut my teeth on in college, um, this is one of the verses in the Four Spiritual Laws booklet. I heard everybody attack this. They say, well, uh, I came that God has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, He does. That wonderful plan may include suffering and may include persecution, but that's a wonderful plan. I mean, Peter himself says, I, I, I rejoice in suffering for the Lord. But he says, I came that you might have life, you might have it abundantly. Unfortunately, that is twisted by many teachers to mean what? Wealth, health, um, a perfect wife, a perfect husband, perfect kids, um, good, park, good parking spaces, yeah. Um, what does he mean by abundant, do you think? I mean, I mean when, when you think of the, the descriptions uh, of an abundant life in, in the scriptures, it's, it's rarely uh, physical, it's, it's rarely material. It's things like purpose, it's things like joy, it's things like contentment. If, you were to, if, if God were to grant one wish um, for you, and God's not a genie, um, what would you ask him for? It's interesting. How, I, 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 take a poll. I'll give you a second. Thing. What would, don't say it out loud. But what, what would you, you say, you ask me for one thing, and that thing I will give to you exactly as you want it. It's interesting what you would ask for. Wouldn't it be interesting if we asked that? I, I, I pray and I, that you would grant me joy and contentment regardless of my circumstances. That I would experience joy and contentment regardless of what I face. Man, what a great gift would that be. But guess what? He has. It's called an abundant life. It, 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 now obviously, I have a responsibility in that. He never promised health. He never promised wealth. He never promised an easy road. But he's saying, I came that you might have life and might have it abundant. Meaningful, purposeful, joy, contentment. And look at all the times that I've worried and sweat. and What's, what's past tense of sweat? Sweat. Sweat? <laughs> Sweated? Sweated? I just thought of that. I thought, what's the past tense of I... I I did sweat. I was in the state of sweating. Um, and, and, and God delivered me, or God never did it. And I wasted all that time worrying and fretting. You know, and I'm, you know we have people, we're, we're praying for prayer requests, and they're worrying and they're fretting. And, and I get that because I do that a lot too. And God comes through. We, we, we allow ourselves to be robbed of this abundant life. Um, because we, we, we just choose to worry. We choose to take matters into our own hands. We, um, we get discouraged. We lose heart. Um, and he says, I, I, I didn't come for that. I, I didn't die, come to die for you for that. I came to give you an abundant life. Not a perfect life. Not, a, not always materially prosperous. But, but this is what I'm talking about in terms of our prayer life. To be, to be praying out of an abundance. 
rather than, than fear and worry and doubt. Um, he came. Uh, number six, and finally the last one, he came to realign our allegiances. Um, if you turn to Matthew chapter 10, he came to realign our allegiances. Some of the hardest words that Jesus spoke are in this, uh, this chapter. Matthew chapter 10. Verse 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. Here it is. I, I did not come. Do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. Which is interesting because what do we sing? What's one of our Christmas carols? Peace on earth, goodwill, goodwill to men. But Jesus said, I didn't come to bring... What's that? Yeah, but they didn't say peace to men. Peace among men. With whom? God is well pleased. We're going to deal with that next Sunday, by the way. Do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to turn a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be members of his household. The one who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And the one who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And the one who, is, one who has found his life will lose it. And the one who has lost his life on my account will find it. Especially verse 37. The one who loves his father more than me is not worthy of me. Um, whoever, uh, the one who loves his son or daughter is not worthy of me. The one who does not take his cross and follow me. I mean, these are, these are really hard words. Very black and white. What is he saying? What do we do with these hard words? I think Jesus is addressing something very, very fundamental um, to what it means to be a follower of Christ and to follow Him. And He uses... Those, as an illustration, he uses those relationships that are, that are closest and most dearest to us. Father and mother and in-laws and son-in-laws, daughter-in-laws. And Jesus uses these relationships, I think, and, and, and phrases these things to jolt us in, into reality that he came to realign our allegiances. And here's the idea, I think. It is better to be with no one else but to be with Jesus than to be with everyone else and to be without Jesus. Most of us have never had to make that decision. Some of us have. Most of us haven't. If, you, if the average Muslim in Tanzania has to decide, am I going to be with my family and be without Jesus or be without my family but have Jesus. They have to make that decision. Jesus came not to bring peace but to bring a sword to realign our allegiances. He, he came to say that my blood is thicker than family blood if it comes to that. And it may not. It may not ever have to make that cho- choice, that decision. It could be persecution. It could be being ostracized. He says, I didn't come to, to help you get along with everyone. In fact, I came to bring a sword. 
and to realign your allegiances, that your allegiance to me must be first above everything else and everyone else. Well, those are some six IMs. Let me read them again. He came to seek and to save lost sinners. He came to give his life as a ransom for many to redeem us. Think of Jesus, baby Jesus in the manger. That's why he came. He came to call sinners to repentance. He came to deliver mankind from the just condemnation of a holy God. He came to give us an abundant life. And He came to realign our allegiances. I pray that this Christmas we would be reminded of the reasons why He came. And the very fact that we are here (laughs) is a result of Him coming. I look at nearly every single one of these, and I'm in every single one of these. I was a lost sinner. I was in the domain of darkness. I needed to repent. I was under God's just condemnation. I was in need of life, eternal life, abundant life. And in fact, I needed to realign my allegiances. That's Christmas. That's why I came. Let's pray. Father, again... uh, Father, for this church, I know that these are very, very basic. Um, but it never—it is—it is never a bad thing to rehearse them, to be reminded of them, to remind ourselves of these great basic truths. Father, that when Jesus came in the world, he did not—he did not become God. Um, he was always God, but he became man. He took on all of the attributes of humanity yet was without sin. So, Father, again, as we celebrate Christmas this season, may we remember the the many varied reasons why He came. And may we truly rejoice because of those reasons. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand and join us?